Good afternoon and welcome to today's training. Today we are talking about settlements, settlement types, and everything to do with settlements and closing cases in New Jersey. So uh, if you're with us today, uh, we're going to talk about section 20s. We're going to talk about section 22s. I'm going to talk about reopeners. I'm going to talk about avoiding reopeners. So thanks for jumping in here today. Uh, this should be a fun topic. My goal, of course, is always to provide you as much practical advice as I possibly can. Uh, so thanks for jumping in into this uh, training today. Uh, if you're with us, you know our mission here is to take control and stay in control of your New Jersey case. In New Jersey, you have this wonderful, amazing advantage, which is that you get to control and direct medical in this state. Don't lose that power. That is one of our chief strengths and that we can direct medical, we can authorize it. There is no uh, opportunity for the claimant to go outside of authorized medical. So that's really the way that we help you drive these cases to closure. And that's our goal, get these cases to close. And that's what we're talking about today. I hope uh, you already have a copy of our handbook on uh, New Jersey workers' compensation law. It was completely redone for 2023. If you don't, um, or uh, you're listening to this on a podcast, uh, you can download that right now. It's loisllc.com forward slash publications. Also, all of the um, uh, webinars that we present, all the various topics we do a month, we also release as a podcast. So you can listen to them in an audio only format and you can get them on any place you find podcasts like iTunes or Spotify or any other service. Uh, speaking of podcasts, if you love podcasts, I really got to recommend you check out my partner's podcast. It's called Third Fridays. It's no surprise, released on the third Friday of the month. And my partner, Christian, really does a great job of exploring sort of deeper or more in-depth discussions about some of these topics that uh, we go through today. Um, this month, um, he did a webinar on uh, some pretty interesting uh, wins that we've gotten in terms of subrogation or reimbursement. So go check that out. All right, today's class, um, I've got a lot of material to get through because I really want to explain um, how permanent disability is assessed in New Jersey. I want to talk about the different settlement types that are available to you. And of course, I want to give you the benefit of my 23 years of experience defending workers' compensation cases in this state. Uh, please ask questions. This is meant to be an interactive uh, seminar. I do go through a lot of prepared material, but ask me questions. It makes this so much more fun. And I know some people are a little hesitant to ask questions. They think, oh, my questions will be dumb or silly or it's basic. That's okay. I'm sure there's somebody else out there who's like wishing that someone had asked that question for them because they weren't even thinking of it. And also think about all the people who um, listen to this as a podcast or a playback on video. Because remember, all of these uh, webinars and discussions we do are recorded. They're all available on our website for download. In fact, uh, we just got the numbers in. Last year, we had more than 30,000 downloads of our podcast. So you might be asking a question for you, but also it's great for the people who are listening in later or listening to this in a recording. So please ask those questions uh, and I'll do my best to answer them. You can type them into the box and I will answer them at the end. Um, all right. Let's dive into evaluating cases for exposure in New Jersey. It's sort of a black art, and it's my goal to make this a little bit more straightforward. I want to shine some light on this sort of arcane area. And the questions we're going to answer are, A, when we should know the exposure in a case, 
B, how we're estimating exposure, uh, and then what are the things that we need to know in order to do that. So the when, when should you be getting evaluations of the case's overall exposure? I'm gonna tell you right now uh, that if you're only getting it right before you start settlement negotiations or right when settlement authority is requested, that's wrong. Um, our process here is that when the case comes in at intake, within seven days, we're sending you what we think uh, the best case, the worst case, and the actual exposure is going to be. It's really important to me that that conversation happens early in the lifetime of a case. Um, in New Jersey, again, you're contracting, uh, sorry, you're controlling and directing medical. Medical is usually terminated by the uh, treating physician, finding that the petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement. Uh, after that, the parties, uh, the uh, opposing counsel, and us, of course, will schedule the petitioner for examinations in regards to permanent residual disability. Even before we schedule that uh, exam, we should be telling you, just based on what the medical in the case is, what the overall exposure is going to be. Of course, we should be talking about exposure and settlement every time we get a demand, every time we conference the case with the judge of compensation, and certainly if we are pre-trying a case. And we're going to talk about what a pre-trial is in just a second in case uh, that's a, a, a new concept. So I came up with this crazy, and I'm just going to apologize right off the top of my head. This is a crazy uh, flowchart, and I we really had struggled to try to make it fit into um, the slide format here, but this is really the flowchart that cases go through when we are getting uh, ready or to get to that final settlement negotiation. And I wanted to walk through the litigation steps in a New Jersey workers' compensation case because I think understanding how this process works really helps you sequence or figure out, hey, when should we be addressing permanent residual disability? So the first step um, when we're addressing settlement in a case, we're addressing exposure is, has the claimant reached maximum medical improvement? And again, this isn't a jurisdiction where you're going to need to use, for example, uh, uh, IME doctors to get to MMI. Your treating physician, remember, you selected this physician, uh, you're controlling and directing these physicians, they should be pushing the petitioner to maximum medical improvement. So, you know, within a reasonable amount of time, the petitioner should reach maximum medical improvement. You know, it's rare for a case to have medical care going on for more than two years. Something like six months to a year is really a more common uh, scenario. So once maximum medical improvement's been reached, we then send the petitioner to a medical expert. Now, they are called independent medical experts, but as we've talked in prior um, presentations, they are not impartial. Okay, they're independent but not impartial. And when I say that, I mean we're picking defense-oriented, uh, less paternalistic, more conservative, more objective, more neutral physicians. And of course, the petitioner is choosing their own physicians, and you're always going to find this massive disparity in the findings between the two evaluators. And you're going to say, Greg, how is this possible? These are trained medical professionals. They're both evaluating the same person. How are they coming to such dramatically different opinions in regards to permanent residual disability? And the answer is, well, our, the plaintiff's bar is picking doctors because they know those doctors are going to come up with high numbers of permanent residual disability. And just to put this in perspective, and I've covered it in our prior um, uh, webinar when we talked about medical, remember that like I never see a zero from the petitioner's experts. You're going to see a 20% is basically a zero. That's where it starts. If, if I went there today and I just finished running a marathon and I walked into one of their doctors, they would give a 
okay? So their baseline just starts a lot higher. And of course, they're overestimating permanent residual disability. They're gonna be more likely to simply parrot the complaints that the petitioner is giving them, just sort of repeat them and go, oh, look at all this stuff they're, they're complaining about and give them uh, much higher numbers, okay? Our physicians are gonna be a lot more objective. They're gonna be a lot more neutral. They're gonna be a lot less paternalistic and you're gonna see dramatically smaller numbers from our physicians. Okay, where does the truth lie? Well, the truth lies probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, the next step is typically to solicit a settlement demand from opposing counsel. Of course, you do not need to wait for a settlement demand in this jurisdiction. You know, once we're ready to start talking about permanency, which really could happen at any time in the case, uh, we can start making settlement offers and start that negotiation process going on. Now, settlement negotiations will typically take place between uh, counsel for the petitioner and counsel for the respondent. Uh, generally speaking, uh, my adversaries usually will not make an offer, or sorry, make a demand until I make an offer. Uh, some of them will make demands early in the case. Some of them will even make written demands, which is wonderful. Uh, but oftentimes this requires phone calls, lots of emails to even solicit a settlement demand. Why is that? Well, typically it's because my opposing counsel has hundreds of cases that they're defending, many more cases than we're, um, that they're presenting, many more cases than our typical defense uh, respondent would be defending. And so they're just not on top of making uh, lots of settlement uh, demands uh, timely. So we'll generally chase them for a settlement demand and uh, try to get the uh, negotiation started. Now, sometimes we can go back and forth, we can reach a negotiated settlement and come to some kind of agreement. Uh, and again, we're gonna hopefully make an agreement that is favorable to the respondent, that's reasonable in light of the medical care, appropriate in, in, in regards to the person's uh, actual permanent residual disability. Uh, it's gonna take into account their current workability, maybe their current job, all of those things. But so when we can agree, uh, the case will be uh, put through for a settlement. And that simply means put through on the record. We're gonna go before a judge of compensation. There are no out of court settlements in this jurisdiction. Even a lump sum dismissal needs to be approved by a judge of compensation. So where we can get to an agreement, a negotiated agreement, uh, very straightforward. We can simply tell you, tell, hey judge, good news. We've reached a resolution in this case. We are ready to settle this matter. Um, most judges at that point will simply say, okay, uh, bring in the petitioner or bring in an affidavit and we're going to put this settlement through on the record. Some judges, even where the parties have negotiated a settlement between them and they're both happy with it, will still say, wait a second, uh, I want to look at the underlying medicals, I want to look at the uh, permanency reports, the independent medical expert reports, and I want to confirm that this settlement is fair and just. So it's really going to be a little bit judge dependent. Now, where the parties cannot agree, right? Uh, and so, again, when, when we're doing that settlement and it's, and it's uh, negotiated, um, we can contact the judge and usually you can say, judge, can you add this on for settlement? And so, uh, you can get that put through on the record very quickly. Now, where a settlement cannot be uh, reached amicably between the parties, generally speaking, the case will be conferenced with the judge of compensation and that is called a pretrial conference. In fact, every conference is called a pretrial conference unless there's a motion pending. Um, generally speaking, the judge will weigh in, and this is one thing that's really unique about this jurisdiction. Where the parties cannot agree on a overall settlement or resolution of a matter, 
the judge of compensation in New Jersey is very comfortable looking through the actual medicals. They'll look at both the IME reports of both parties. Uh, they'll ask questions of opposing counsel and the respondent's counsel, and they'll uh, give you their two cents. They'll say, well, here's what I think, or here's what uh, how this case should resolve, or here's some suggestions. So you'll get some input from a judge of compensation, and that will all be done informally. That's off the record. It's typically done in chambers or on a phone call with a judge of compensation, and that's going to be all done relatively informally between the parties discussing it. Now, if the parties still can't agree, in other words, the judge weighs in and says, hey, um, I think this case is worth X. If the parties agree, you're, that's easy. You could put it through on the record, and you'll have a settlement, and it'll be quite straightforward. If the parties cannot agree, and again, uh, this is after the judge has weighed in, the next step is for the parties to do a formal pretrial of the case. And what that pretrial means is a pretrial memorandum is executed between the parties. This memorandum is pretty useful in a workers' compensation case because it's really a one-page sheet which is um, created by the workers' compensation court and it's really meant for the parties to list all the issues in dispute, to list all the documents that they intend on presenting in evidence, and identify all witnesses who would have to testify within the case. And so this pretrial memorandum, uh, which has to be executed by rule before any case can proceed to testimony or trial, is really useful because it brings all the parties to like one little piece of paper. Uh, there can be no other issues uh, that are gonna be um, the subject of the trial. And it gets everybody to sort of talk and have all the information in front of them at the same time. A lot of cases settle at the time of this pretrial memorandum being executed. Uh, and we think it's a great um, uh, moment in the case, a really great milestone in your cases where resolution should be reached. The other thing that's interesting about the pretrial memorandum in a New Jersey workers' compensation case is the judge of compensation has to sign this document. And there's a space in the bottom right-hand corner of this document for the judge to write their own settlement recommendation in. And so frequently you'll see uh, the two parties unable to agree to you know, uh, an overall resolution of the case. The case goes to a pretrial, we discuss it with the judge, we can't reach any resolution. We'll take it to the next step, which is to execute this pretrial memorandum. And the judge will write down their recommendation. Now, in my experience, and again, I've been at this a while, right? Unless there's something new or there's some surprise testimony that's going to come out at trial, in general, the judge is going to call the case ultimately the way they write down on their pretrial recommendation, right? And so uh, that's a really good signal to you, the client, the risk professional, the insured employer, the employer, hey, this is how this is probably going to turn out if we try the case. But we're not done there. Uh, if we've pre-tried the case, the next step is for the matter to proceed to trial. Every trial decision results in a written order that is appealable as of right. So if you don't agree with what the judge's recommendations are, you go to trial and the judge ultimately rules in a way that you're unhappy with, again, you have that right to appeal but you will get a written order, a final determination. So here's all the steps, and you know the big steps that, that are the big milestones are first, um, getting those uh, permanency evaluations, those IME examinations. Next, it's getting a settlement demand from opposing counsel, negotiating that, and then uh, moving forward and having a conference with the judge of compensation where we actually talk turkey uh, with the judge about our overall settlement value. And then finally, if we can't reach a negotiated settlement, uh, we're off to trial. You will end up with a written order. 
So those are your basic steps. Now, uh, what I've skipped over so far is how exposure is estimated in this jurisdiction. And by the way, I'm a defense counsel, so you're not going to hear me talk about reserves. I'm going to talk about exposure. Okay. So there's really two systems in place. The first system is the scheduled loss of use system for enumerated body parts. That's hand, finger, foot, and toes, eyes, legs, ears. And I've reduced this to a simple numeric chart, which I put in the back of my handbook. But to be frank with you, almost no one is using this chart anymore. We're all using a digital tool called Oscar, which I'll talk about in one second. But the value of putting these things on a chart is that you can see there is a maximum number of weeks and maximum value for each body part. So total loss of use of a hand is 245 weeks. Total loss of use of, of an arm, which is by the way, everything is defined as everything below the shoulder, is 330 weeks of compensation. And every body part has been given a specific number of weeks uh, that uh, would represent a maximum schedule loss of use of that body part. So that's pretty straightforward and similar to many, many other jurisdictions. What's great about New Jersey is the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Court uh, actually um, publishes a digital tool that they call OSCAR. I don't know what OSCAR stands for, but I think it probably stands for something. And this tool is used to uh, calculate uh, permanent residual disability for every body part. Uh, and on the bottom of your screen here, you can see a link to where you can go to that Oscar webpage. It's really just a webpage that you can plug in numbers. And the most important numbers are going to be the date of loss, the average weekly wage, and then the percentage of the disputed body part. You can also, in Oscar, de, uh, uh, calculate permanent residual disability for what's called partial total in New Jersey. New Jersey is not a wage loss state. Compensation per, for permanent residual disability is supposed to be based simply on the medical impairment of the petitioner. Uh, and so we don't look at the person's current earnings or ability to earn a wage. We look at their amount of medical impairment. And so all of the body parts which are not enumerated, which are not scheduled lease body parts, so think about things like psychiatric disability, neurological disability, um, lumbar injuries, cervical injuries, thoracic spine injuries, all those types of uh, injuries are compensated in terms of partial total with a maximum of 600 weeks of compensation. And you could plug those numbers into this handy dandy partial total calculator, which is an Oscar, and have it spit out the numbers for you. And I recommend at this point uh, that no one use the charts anymore. Now, I've been at this for so long as before they had the digital tools and we used to use the, the charts and come up with our calculations. And if you're familiar with some other states, it can be very confusing and New Jersey is very confusing uh, in terms of stacking weeks, offsetting body parts, all those types of things. We recommend at this point that everyone use the Oscar calculator when um, estimating cases for exposure and also for calculating any judgments or orders. And the reason for that is because the judges of compensation are gonna use the Oscar calculator. And so they are expecting to see the numbers that come from that chart. So that's how that's going to be um, utilized in a workers' compensation context. Now, the big question is always the fact that the two physicians that have been chosen by the, each opposing side are going to have wildly different opinions in regards to permanent residual disability. And again, I said earlier, uh, these are independent medical experts, but they are not impartial. You're not going to see any crossover. You'll never see... Uh, one of the defense experts cross over and do opinions for the plaintiff's cases. And again, that's because 
They are not impartial. They are both partial. We are hiring experts because we expect and we know what their testimony is likely going to be. And we, we've had them on the stand many times and we know how they're going to testify. So we're frequently confronted with these situations where someone has a relatively vague or subjective injury and wildly different opinions from the two independent uh, medical experts who are evaluating permanency. So figuring out the exposure is not easy in this jurisdiction. Also, this jurisdiction lacks any type of published uh, disability duration guideline, opinion memos, uh, or any other type of objective criteria for determining permanent residual disability, right? So think of how many jurisdictions have a published criteria for permanent residual disability. Think about how many jurisdictions uh, do things like have adopted the AMA guidelines for estimating permanent residual disability. Or think about New York, our sister state, right, you know, right across the river uh, from us. In New York, uh, they've published a disability duration guideline which goes through every single body part, every potential injury, anything that could possibly happen to you, and um, have published guidelines that the independent experts are supposed to utilize when they're estimating disability. Well, New Jersey has none of that. It is left up to the individual examiner. Now, it's very interesting because I cross-examine petitioners, experts all the time, and I tell them, I, ask, I start off by asking real basic questions when I cross-examine. I say things like, what is permanent residual disability? Can you define it? And the reason I ask that is because oftentimes they're just looking at somebody and they go, oh, you fractured your toe? That's 50% of the toe, move on to the next person. You know, they give me these quick, opinions that are really based on nothing. So um, when you're looking at exposure, we've got to look at something else uh, because you cannot simply compare the two reports to each other and go, oh, well, it's somewhere in the middle, okay? So what we have to look at um, are what are the rules of thumb in this jurisdiction? And you also have to be aware of the jurisdictional factors that impact exposure, okay? So the first one we tell you about is that New Jersey gives you a credit for pre-existing disability. The pre-existing disability does not have to be for a work-related prior injury. If you have a claimant who sprained their knee in high school playing football, you can get a credit for that in your current uh, you know, uh, work-related knee injury case. Even though there was never a finding of disability, even though there was never an award, and you don't even have to have the medical records related to that prior. As long as the claimant admits that they had a prior or pre-existing condition in the body part, Good news, you can declare a credit. Also, what's interesting about the credit in New Jersey, which is based on a, a decision called the Abdullah decision, that's why we call it an Abdullah credit, it is at today's dollars. So if we find a disability is pre-existing to the amount of 5%, you get a discount in today's dollars, which is great. New Jersey also um, allows for voluntary tenders of compensation, which, or many states will call that an advanced payment of compensation. When you have a case in which you know the petitioner is going to have a permanent residual disability, you can attempt to make a, a valid, good faith payment of that disability in advance. Another factor which influences your overall exposure is gonna be stacking. Multiple injuries to multiple body parts will all be stacked up on top of each other and will result typically in a much larger award. And that's because the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Disability Charts are not linear. So as you add additional weeks, each additional week of compensation is paid at a higher and higher rate. And so stacking can have a very significant impact on your overall exposure. Um, New Jersey also has a wonderful reimbursement and subrogation statute, section 40. We've talked about that in prior trainings. 
under Section 40, you are entitled to 100% reimbursement for all amounts paid in the workers' compensation case from the proceeds of any uh, civil action filed against any party. And the only discount that is taken from your reimbursement right is the amount of attorney's fees plus $750 uh, that the petitioner had to pay in order to obtain that third party award. So that's an amazing um, reimbursement statute. New Jersey still has a second entry fund. So a lot of states have dissolved their second injury funds, uh, but New Jersey has not. New Jersey has a active second injury fund, which is um, available to us in our total disability cases. Uh, so that helps us reduce exposure. And the last factor that I'm gonna talk about that um, significantly impacts um, exposure in this jurisdiction is what judge here before and what venue. In my opinion, there are two New Jerseys. There is North Jersey and South Jersey. And sometimes people that live in New Jersey will say, oh, I live in Central Jersey, but that doesn't exist. Uh, there's really only North and South. And the dividing line is, as you can see in this little map that I've put up on the screen, roughly the Raritan River, or you can think of it as Sandy Hook, uh, if you know anything about the New Jersey uh, seashore. But that's really your dividing line in New Jersey. And we find that cases in the northern half of New Jersey, in the um, eight hearing points, which are north of that sort of dividing line, are have generally slightly lower exposure, about 10% on average, than cases in South Jersey. We also see that there are specific places in New Jersey, and I'm looking at you, Atlantic City, I'm looking at you, Atlantic County and Camden County, where there are just so many more motions for med intent filed, uh, where the, um, the valuations for your typical workers' compensation case are going to be between 10 and 15% higher than they are in North Jersey. So that's something to be mindful of. You know, you really have to be thoughtful of where your case is pending. Now, there is a normal range, pretty much, for each injury type. And what's interesting about this jurisdiction is uh, do not spend too much time looking at the outcome. Because remember, New Jersey is an impairment state. It's not a wage loss state. The petitioner does not have to show any impairment of their ability to earn a living in order to obtain a huge award for permanent residual disability in this jurisdiction. So many times you'll see cases where the claimant um, is getting a large award and they're currently working for the employer in the same job title, maybe working the same number of hours, maybe they're earning more money because they're doing overtime or they've gotten a raise. And you're looking and you say, Judge, what could possibly be the permanent impairment here? The person got, had an injury, they had a surgery, they're back at work, they're doing their full job, but this is an impairment state. And so the judge is going to be basing their decision on the medical injury the person had and the type of treatment they got. It's a strange jurisdiction in that the more medical treatment you provide someone, and usually the more effective the medical treatment it is, generally the higher your award is gonna be for permanent residual disability. Now, that being said, most cases fall within a pretty narrow range. Uh, even though the two evaluating physicians are going to come up with wildly different opinions in regards to permanent disability, you'll discover that there really are uh, some pretty much agreed upon values for pretty much every commonplace injury. And we should be able to tell you that almost immediately once we know the injury uh, and how and the severity of it and the type of treatment the person's obtaining, we'll be able to tell you very early in the case really what it's going to settle for. Again, you've got to look at the venue, you've got to look at the judge. I'll also tell you that the judges in this jurisdiction are very active. They actually look at the underlying medicals in a case. 
Uh, many times I've conferenced a case with a judge and they've said, wait, I want to see the MRI report myself. I want to look at the operative report myself. And that's wonderful because the judges are interested uh, and they're trying to discharge their duties effectively. Uh, but unfortunately, it also means it's we oftentimes have two adversaries in our negotiations, uh, the petitioner's attorney and the judge. And this is very different than other jurisdictions. I mean, we practice in New York. Uh, in New York, we have 42 attorneys that are appearing every single day, and I've never heard a judge in New York in 20 years say, Greg, I want to look at an MRI report, or I want to see the operative report, when they are determining permanent disability. That's just something that wouldn't happen there. But in New Jersey, the judges are very activist, they are very involved, uh, they do look at the their duties under the workers' compensation law as their role is to get involved in the workers' compensation cases instead of simply mediating disputes between parties. And because of that, you have to take into consideration what judge is looking at your case and what their uh, prior biases, prejudices, or your experiences with them have been over time, and particularly in regards to specific treaters, specific IME doctors, and specific opposing counsel. So all of those things should be weighed and taken into consideration as factors when you are determining permanent residual disability in this state. All right, New Jersey offers different settlement types. And it's really important to understand the two different types of cases and the ways they can be settled. Um, first is Section 22. Section 22 we do not like, okay? And that is because Section 22 awards or settlements are subject to reopening. And we'll talk about reopening before I finish today's uh, presentation. Uh, these awards are subject to reopening which means the petitioner has an opportunity in the future to come forward and say, yeah, I know I accepted that settlement, or judge, you called it and you made an award of compensation of 50% of permanent partial total, but now I've got more pain or more complaints, or maybe I just want more money, and now we've got to reopen that case. And unfortunately, uh, Section 22 awards or settlements allow for this reopener. This means that your cases in New Jersey are gonna have this tremendous long tail if you settle them under Section 22, and you know, you're not just settling this case, you're gonna be coming back in two, three, four, six years for them to try to reopen that case. Now, a Section 22 settlement is paid out over a course of weeks, and that is by statute, and the judges are very um, strict about this. You cannot do a commutation or accelerate those weeks. Finally, medical stays open in a Section 22 award or settlement which is on one hand good because it means we don't have any secondary payer situations that we have to be thoughtful of, but of course it's really bad because the petitioner post-award or post-settlement is gonna come forward to you and continue to ask for medical care if they think they need it. So that's the challenge with Section 22s. Now, Section 20s I love because these are lump sum dismissals. They are not subject to reopeners. They are a here you go, here's your money, story's over, thank you for your journey with us, but it has come to an end. Uh, so it is, those are truly final settlements. Unfortunately, because they're final, we may close out medical. You have the opportunity to close out all future medical. Um, you may have a Medicare or secondary payer obligation to be thoughtful of. Now, Section 22s are, are sometimes called order-approving settlements. Remember that a judge can never force you to settle. Okay, they can, they can say, look, you guys won't settle. We're taking this to trial, and I'm going to issue you an order. But that's a judicial order, okay? So a Section 22 is a settlement. The judge can never force it. Unfortunately, they are subject to reopeners, so just be mindful about that. The other thing about a Section 22 and every settlement in New Jersey is they must be approved by a trial judge. 
Uh, there are no out-of-court settlements or dismissals allowed in New Jersey. And if you do an out-of-court settlement or dismissal, uh, that's great, good for you, but you didn't really get a settlement or dismissal because the petitioner can simply go in the court the next day and say, that doesn't count, thanks for paying me that money, uh, but I never meant to do that. And so that's really not great. Also, Section 22s, uh, or order approving settlements are paid over weeks going into the future. So every award or compensation under an order approving settlement or section 22 will describe the compensation as an amount per week and a number of weeks for it to be paid uh, and that will yield your gross award. Uh, that's really not great, right? Because you're gonna be paying this settlement maybe for 300 weeks, that's six years by the way, into the future. And the really bad thing about paying an award into the future over weeks and not being able to accelerate those weeks means their reopener period is two years from the date you last paid compensation. So if you're paying them over 300 weeks, that's five or six years, and then they have two years from that to reopen their case. And now you're starting to see how these New Jersey workers' comp cases have this massive tail. And it, even though your attorney comes to you and says, hey, great, we got an order approving settlement, we've closed our case. No, they haven't. You're, that case is subject to be a reopener. You're gonna keep that thing on the books for years. Your tail's gonna look terrible and you're not gonna be happy. I'm not happy about it either. So uh, section 22, also the judge will apportion attorney's fees typically. Um, there are no maximum on fees uh, since 2015, but typically attorney's fees are 20% of the total award or settlement. Um, the maximum fee for petitioner's experts is $600, and the judges will typically apportion 60% of the petitioner's own attorney's fee to us. That means that we're actually paying, on top of our settlement, a portion of the petitioner's attorney's fee. So just to put this into some, some math for you, a $10,000 award to the petitioner, the maximum fee that the judge can um, provide would be $2,000. Generally speaking, the judge will also make us pay 60% of that, so add another $1,200 onto your overall exposure there. Um, and uh, of course, the judge will also make us pay typically 50% of the petitioner's expert costs. And so the overall exposure to us for a $10,000 settlement is actually higher because we have that portion of petitioner's attorney's fees, plus we have that portion of their experts. So when we're gonna estimate exposure for you, we're also gonna add that in so that you're re making sure that you can reserve on your end the right amount of money for that uh, settlement and so that settlement authority can be clear and clean between the parties. Now, my favorite type of settlement, when I wake up in the morning and I put my lawyer costume on, I have my lawyer haircut and I throw back the covers and I'm gonna go to workers' compensation court, my goal is to get a section 20 lump sum dismissal and I would love to get them in every single case. I'd love to close every case by way of a dismissal. And the reason is because it is not subject to a reopener. Now, a judge can never order a Section 20 settlement, right? They can't order any kind of settlement. A judge can only issue an award or judgment or dismiss a case, okay? They can never order a dismissal. But a judge can send a strong signal to opposing counsel, say, look, uh, uh, petitioner's attorney, your case is very, very weak. There's a potential if you go to trial, you could get zero, you could get nothing. So maybe you should do a Section 20, a lump sum dismissal of the case. Again, these Section 20s must be approved by the trial judge. Uh, they are not valid if you do them directly between you and the petitioner, and they cannot be done out of court. Now, I would love to Section 20 every case in the world, but there is a strong bias in this workers' compensation division against Section 20s. Uh, I think if there's 
two things that I could change about the New Jersey workers' compensation law. Uh, the first thing I would do is change the judicial bias against Section 20s. Now, there are legal requirements for a judge to approve a Section 20, and the legal requirement essentially is that there must be some kind of issue and dispute. However, there's always going to be an issue and dispute, which is my doctor says it's 2%, your doctor says it's 100%, there's an issue as to the nature and extent of permanent residual disability. That's a valid dispute. Every case almost always is going to have this very valid dispute, you know, with the exception of like admitted acceptable total disability cases or maybe death cases, every case is going to have this issue in dispute. And so really a section 20 should be available in every case. Um, but oftentimes, and, and the judges really are trained uh, not to approve section 20s uh, in accepted admitted cases where medical was provided and where both parties have permanent residual disability findings. In those circumstances, the judges are generally not going to permit a lump sum dismissal. Uh, and by the way, petitioner's counsel is not going to want to do that either because they get the right to reopen. And that right to reopen is important to the petitioner's attorney because that's another opportunity to earn a second fee. You didn't have to sign up a new claimant. You didn't have to go put another ad in the yellow pages. No, actually, nobody does that. You don't have to um, put any more Google AdWords out there or, or go on daytime TV or advertise on a bus stop bench. You already have the claimant. You could just file more claims for the same person in the future for the same injury. I mean, it's really ideal for them. And so they're going to push these pretty hard. You can also do a hybrid settlement in New Jersey uh, where you'd enter two separate orders. You'd say, hey, this portion of the case is going to be resolved by way of Section 20. And this portion of the case, uh, maybe where it's admitted or an accepted body part, is going to be resolved by way of order approving settlement, that's Section 22 settlement. And you can do that. And you know, we'll typically do that in circumstances where the claimant has a admitted compensable injury, and then it has maybe a disputed component to the case, like a consequential psych condition uh, or a consequential body part that they're trying to bring in the case. The good news is when you do a hybrid settlement and you say on this hand we're going to do a section 22 or order approving settlement that resolves the compensable component of this case and we're going to do a section 20 on this hand which is going to resolve the uh, portion of the case in dispute. The good news is that portion of the case that's in dispute oftentimes it's psychiatric by the way cannot be reopened, right? So you've avoided this problem for the future and that's something that can be really powerful and useful for you and you know depends on the case. All right, so that's a little bit about settlement types in New Jersey. Let's talk about uh, what I've been focusing on so much, which is the downside, which are these reopeners. Uh, we dislike reopeners. Uh, when we answer these reopeners, it's just like answering a, a claim petition in a typical case, with the exception that I have to provide additional information to the court when I file my answer to a reopener. I have to explain exactly how much money we've paid, how much temp we've paid, how much medical we've authorized since the original settlement or award. Now, oftentimes there is no additional medical, right? And usually there's no additional temp. So we're really looking at the amount of the accrued award and how much has already been paid. Uh, we're going to come to you, typically the um, employer or the insurer or the client, and say, hey, we need the information about how much you've paid because we've closed our file. Our, our policy here is when a case reaches an order approving settlement or a judicial order, an award of compensation, we're closing our case. So we're not going to keep tracking it after that. But in order for us to um, provide a defense in the reopener case, we're going to need to know how many payments have been made uh, by you and how many weeks have already accrued. Now remember the award begins running from the time the petitioner reaches MMI or temporary total disability. 
which means when you're calculating your settlement in a workers' compensation case in New Jersey, you don't go from the time of the settlement. You go all the way back to when the person reached MMI or from when you last paid temp. And so for that reason, some of these awards, we can push exposure backwards in time. It also means that we are referring us a reopener to defend. We need to know that the last date that temp was paid or the first time uh, we agreed the award would run from. So these are all things that we're going to be looking at to help you reduce your exposure and risk on those reopeners. When you're sending us a case to defend for a reopener, please send us your payment ledger. Please let us know if any authorized medical was provided since the entry of the prior award. Now, my advice is once you've settled a workers' compensation case, you should not willingly be offering any more medical care and particularly offering medical care or particularly um, second opinion evaluations or need for treatment evaluations because all you're doing is restarting that two-year period from which the petitioner can file that reopener. In other words, you are extending the statute of limitations for them to file that. All right, let's jump in uh, now to some um, questions. Let's see what you have for me uh, on, in terms of questions. I'm gonna open up my questions tab over here and I hope I've got a couple on. Okay, got some good ones here. Let's go, let's start from the top. All right, uh, Thomas Forrester asks, sorry, I won't say your last names going forward, my bad. Uh, Thomas says, Greg, if a matter is reopened and the petitioner is seeking an examination and treatment in another state, can you decline to offer treatment in another state and direct them to treat in New Jersey? And if a petitioner refuses to return for, to New Jersey for examination and subsequent treatment, what happens? Stalemate, obligated to offer the examination or treatment in another state where they move to? Okay, so here's an interesting question, and you've got a case where the claimant um, received an award of compensation or an order approving settlement. And now, and then they move to a different state, right? They took their workers' compensation, their tax-free money, they moved to Florida, okay? That's what I wanna do. I wanna be uh, paid money to do nothing and lay on the beach in Florida all day, right? That sounds great. Uh, and then they contact you and say, okay, I'm ready to reopen my case now, but I need a need for treatment evaluation. I need you to send me to the doctor. Well, in New Jersey, the law states under section 19 um, that if they are seeking additional care, you have the right to require them to come back to New Jersey for an evaluation. My advice would typically be, don't send them back to the treating physician, send them back to the last independent medical evaluator, your expert, your medical expert, who evaluated them for the purposes of permanency in New Jersey. Uh, in general, that evaluator is gonna be familiar with their treatment, they're gonna be aware that they reached maximum medical improvement, and they performed a physical examination uh, for the purposes of determining permanent residual disability. So they're gonna have a good locked-in picture of this petitioner. Uh, under the, the law in New Jersey, you can require them to come back to the state. Now, a lot of them are gonna resist this. They'll say, well, look, uh, don't come back just for this evaluation. Come back when you're coming home for Christmas anyway, or you're coming back for a holiday, or you're coming back to spend your summer at the Jersey Shore, or whatever you're up to, and we'll schedule it around you. Okay, so that's sort of a mediated way you could do it. Um, now, if you are making this demand, and they say, I'm not coming back to the state, I would also tell you that it is generally in your interest to offer them travel reimbursement to come back to New Jersey. I've had really bad luck with when the petitioner moves to a different state and we're trying to be super nice guys and accommodating and we get them an evaluator in that other state to evaluate them. I find that those evaluators, A, they're not familiar with our Jersey standards 
they're not going to do maybe the kind of review or comprehensive review of the medicals that we've already had done. They're probably going to discount our IME physicians' findings. And so for that reason, I haven't had good luck with that. So you have the right under the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law to require them to come back to the state and have the evaluation here. I would make them do that. I would make them do that with your IME physician. So I hope, um, Thomas, that's a helpful answer for you. Okay. Gail asked the question, Greg, once an agreement is submitted to the judge, how long do they have to respond, approve, or reject the agreement? Well, there is nothing under the statute or the court rules as to how quickly the judge must respond. In general, though, the judges are very responsive, uh, particularly where it's a case where the judge has already weighed in on or they've already given their opinion in regards to disability uh, or permanency. Um, we're very uh, fortunate that we do have an active bench, an active judiciary, and so you can contact them on off calendar and just say, hey, can we add this on next week? Can we add this in on my regular list day this week? Can we add it in tomorrow? And a lot of judges are very accommodating. Now, one thing I have seen um, is, and this has really been kind of messing with settlements across the state, is making sure there's a court reporter available has become a problem in this jurisdiction. They like change the contracts of who the court reporters are, and so that's been one challenge. I've even had judges who on a regular court calendar day has said, well, I don't have a reporter past noon today, so we've got to get everything done in the morning. So that's problematic, uh, but that's just something that, you know, work around. But I'll tell you, Gail, if it goes beyond a week or two, uh, or a, uh, certainly a three-week cycle, something's gone wrong there. We should be able to add these things onto the calendar and get them done uh, pretty quickly. Uh, Gail asked a second question, which I'm going to consider kind of a follow-up question which is, Greg, what factors determine if a Section 22 settlement is chosen over a Section 20? Great, great question. And the answer is, this just really comes down to the judge. Um, typically, the only reason why a Section 20 is not allowed is really judicial bias. Um, almost every case is going to be statutorily and by rule available to be closed by way of Section 20. However, judges, some judges, adopt a very strict reading of the statute, which says there has to be a significant issue and dispute in regards to cause relationship, jurisdiction, accident notice, or the nature and extent of permanent residual disability. And they will argue that where the uh, evaluator for the respondent finds any disability and it's an accepted accident, it's not appropriate for a section 20. Now that's a wrong reading of the statute, period, end of story. Um, however, if they're not gonna approve the section 20, you're not gonna really have something that you can go and appeal. Right, so uh, unfortunately, it's really gonna be judge by judge and whether they uh, accept it or not. What I've discovered is the longer a judge sits on the bench and certainly once they get tenure, then they're happy to section 20 cases and they'll do it on a more regular basis uh, simply because you know they've got more experience, they realize this is a game. Uh, sometimes we can work around the judge's objections to the section 20, like we know that the only reason they're not approving them is so that they, this allows the petitioner to come back for a reopener. And you know there are some paternalistic feelings there, like I've got to protect the petitioner from themselves. Um, that's silly, judge. They have their own attorney, right? That's going to protect them from themselves. But anyway, uh, and so the judge will say, I'm not going to approve it this time. And we'll say, judge, what if we audit, added a little more money to the Section 20 offer that would be equivalent to what they would maybe get if they filed a reopener, right? So we're kind of juicing up the settlement because we know we're foreclosing their, their future settlement, right? their future reopener rights, I should say. So there are things you can do, but really the number one factor that's going to determine whether or not a Section 20 or a Section 22 is the way you're going to settle a case is really who the judge is and what their opinion is. 
that's it. I wish I could tell you that there's some great case law on this. There is not, or a bright line rule. There is not. This really just comes down to judicial bias. So sorry about that. All right. Um, Judy asked the question. Uh, Judy K says, Greg, can you send the link, please? I don't know which link you're talking about, so type it into me and I will tell you what the link is. Um, Ryan asked the question, Greg, on a regular settlement of partial total, do you pay the weeks that have passed since your last paid temp in a lump sum, then you have to pay the remaining weeks in weekly until the award is paid in full? This sounds similar to Section 22, and that, that's correct, okay? So that's exactly right. Uh, whether it's a award issued by a judge or an order approving settlement, the time that's already elapsed since either maximum medical improvement or the ending cessation of temp, you're going to pay that all at once at the time of the settlement, and then you're going to go forward paying on a weekly basis, okay? So I hope that makes sense to you. And I'm scrolling down. Oh, Judy says, Greg, what's the, um, the uh, link for Oscar? So I'm just going to go back, uh, and I'm going to show you that screen again so you can see it, and I'll read it out loud for you. I'm just going back, do, 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 uh, back to my Oscar screen. Come on, come on, you can do it. Okay, here it is. I uh, hope you can see this, Judy. It is courtsonline.dol.state.nj.us forward slash Oscar Calc, all one word, forward slash partial total dot HTML. So there's the link. Um, you can also find it on the uh, workers' compensation uh, website as well. Um, and then finally, last question I see here is Paul saying, Greg, are you going to send me a copy of your uh, PowerPoint via email? No, generally I don't do that because there's just hundreds and hundreds of people. So if I did it, it would take me forever to do that. But I will post this. Uh, within 24 hours to our website so you'll have access to all the slides and all the information. Um, all right, and that's all the questions we have. Some takeaways. My opinion is that exposure should be continuously evaluated as we're defending these cases, as you're handling your cases. It's changing, right? And hopefully we're doing things as the defense or as the risk professional that are changing and hopefully reducing exposure as the case develops. The other second thought I want to share with everyone is, you know, you can settle a case via different methods in New Jersey. And again, you don't even have to settle. You can require the judge to go to trial and give you an opinion. Um, but the way you settle those cases is going to have a real big impact into the future, and that's on reopening. We really want to avoid reopening in this jurisdiction. It gives you these huge tails, um, huge future ongoing exposure, and we really want to try to avoid that. So thanks for joining in today, guys. Thanks for all the questions. I love it when there's lots of questions. It makes this so much more fun. Uh, this will be on our website. It will be available as a podcast. You'll have uh, links to everything uh, generally within 24 hours. Have a great uh, rest of the week. Have a great summer. I'll see you next month in August. Bye, everybody.